This episode is brought to you by Event Scaffolding. How many of us have had the embarrassing situation of organizing a block party and getting only a paltry turnout? Ah, great. Only Myron Flanagan showed up. Well, at least he didn't bring his mom this time. Ah, wait, there she is. Well, you probably planned ahead with folding tables filled with food and refreshments and a big screen with the game on. But there's probably one key thing you forgot. A big event on a tall scaffolding to give your guests a focus and the feeling that something is about to take place. Event Scaffolding has the materials to provide everything you need to attract a crowd and keep them engaged all evening long. Chopping blocks, Sado fetishist outfits, tableau vivant scenery. When you trust Event Scaffolding, your guests will leave your party saying, what on earth did we just see? And they won't be able to unsee it when you order from Event Scaffolding. And when our listeners order a scaffolding plan, they can get a profound religious apparition at no extra charge. Just use the promo code reread, one word. Maybe an obscure saint will make an appearance in your backyard, or a shining community center building will appear in the sky. Event scaffolding cannot promise a new religion will be founded at your party, but they positively guarantee that that's not impossible. And thank you, Event Scaffolding, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, Thor is talking at me. I don't know what he's saying. Only <laughs> the echoes of his mind. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> so I saw the transcript that you had written that out, and I was like, oh, that's funny. And I didn't know if that was a joke for me, and I didn't expect you to actually sing it. So now I am impressed. Now I'm very impressed. Yeah, everybody wants to talk Hey, Thor. <laughs> no one wants to talk awkward sex. Well, it's just as well to me. But I had no idea that Haythor had so many stands like yourself, Craig. We had so many immediate comments. <laughs> Do you need to? I had to look up stand not too long ago, <laughs> just because I'm getting older. So the the lingo isn't is immediate. It's like crazy. Fan. It, what is stand? It's crazy fan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but what's the what's it a, a like a stalker fan actually? Uh, stalker but, fan. That's what it was. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we had so many immediate comments, and people couldn't wait to talk about him and the chapter. There's no way I can do justice to all of them. You know, check them out on Facebook group and on the episode post in the Rereading Wolf podcast subreddit. You'll see that in the show notes. It's fine. Uh, on the subject of whether Haythor is somehow, in some way, Severian, an Aquaster or a version from another universe. I thought we might get a lot of pushback on that, but I think mm -hmm. people have just accepted that we are what we are and are just going <laughs> to embrace it. See, it's just sort of a Platonist kind yeah. of unification where in the <laughs> end, right. everyone is Severian. <laughs> Severian is the one. Yes. Yeah. We are all Severian in the end. So. We are all the first Severian. All <laughs> Severians are first Severian. <laughs> On Reddit, uh, Larrowin said, I was just looking last week at some notes from my last reread and saw, is Haythor actually another Severian? And chuckled at my silliness. 
And then this pod comes along. We've got your back, Larwin. <laughs> Goonhan says the Hathor is Severian theory does appeal on many different levels. It's crazy as can be, but it definitely appeals. On the other hand, Marcus Gavea noted that Hathor could be a version of Severian without being the first Severian. Uh, there are a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. for regular Severian equestrians, after all. Yeah, and I said somewhere this last week that I'm not probably as convinced that he is Severian, mm-hmm. but I definitely, absolutely think this time that we're supposed to see those similarities and connections. And I haven't totally worked out why, yeah. if for nothing else than sort of dramatic irony or something like that. But yeah, I mean, the fact, for just for everything we said, that it was there's too much there, it feels like. Well, it doesn't have to be the first Severian. It doesn't have to be Severian, but... The reason he works as the first Severian for me, as I see it, it's Hathor's doll's connection to violet-eyed Thea rather than violet-eyed Thecla. And it's those doves, man. Every time they show up in the text, it's like a rim shot to me. The girl with the voice like doves. Hands like doves. No explanation really satisfied me about the dove illusions. And then... There was the Thecla, Holy Spirit connection, and the first Severian. And for me, you know, all the pieces just fell into place. Obviously, other people see it differently. Uh, Michael Andre Drisi isn't oppressed. And, you know, he's the one that blew my mind with the first Severian theory. Uh, speaking of Michael, he has other ideas about Hathor as well. He, on Reddit, he pointed out, and I'm going to spoil something about uh, the, a sorcerer in Wolf's uh, Soldier of Sidon. If that's a problem, It'll take about 15 seconds from now. It's that Hathor's sex doll on his ship echoes the sorcerer in that novel who definitely does have an animated doll in the hold of a ship. That was a really good connection, Michael. It it always made me think of Dracula myself, but the parallels to Hathor are there as well. Michael also thinks that Hathor's accent is a put on. Well, that would be very disappointing, I think. (laughs) He thinks the thing about the violet eyes and perhaps the doves are evidence of Agia feeding Hathor lines to say that, you know, like the fake letter that she's going to write. She picked up this stuff from her time with Severian. And I'm not crazy about that idea. But Michael has an alternate theory that Hathor, as a kind of super sorcerer, has ESP. And maybe while he's talking to Severian in Chapter 30, he's actually reading his mind as he talks. And that would go a little ways towards picking up the similarities to Severian, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that that if what he's yeah. doing is trying to make himself seem familiar. And that's interesting. It's definitely interesting. The, the idea that she's feeding him that information, that kind of clicked some things to me more about their interconnectedness. And, and just like how yeah. I feel stupid for not ever really wondering before, like, how is he going to try and kill Severian at the end of Shadow? Because obviously he's there because of Agia. So it seems like she could be feeding him all kinds of other stuff. I mean, she's already thinking about Thecla. She's already thinking, you know, maybe, yeah, if he had someone that was under his care and and she was stolen and there needs to be revenge. I mean, she already knows yeah. even even in that moment outside of the jail cell, she knows about uh, Thecla and how close it was to her, mm-hmm. to him. So, yeah. Well, if he has ESP, it works, but... I just don't think he would have been talking about Thea because that would have drawn up his connection to Vodalus and she doesn't seem to have known about Vodalus. Yeah. yeah. But the, but if he has ESP, it gets around all that, right? Yeah. 
The thing is, if Hathor is already working for Agia in chapter 30, he doesn't seem to be appealing to Severian to set Agalus free. Quite the opposite. Mm. And for that, Michael has an answer. It's not to Hathor's benefit for Severian to set Agalus free, nor is it to his benefit to actually kill Severian. Here, Michael is coming around to my belief, you know, from a side instance, that Hathor is not actually trying very hard to kill Severian. It might even be trying to help him out or just move him along. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm not satisfied, but let's face it. There's enough empty space in Hathor's bio that there are a lot of freewheeling theories that can work. And Michael's is certainly self-consistent. Well, I like that too, because I'm still kind of a fan. We, we didn't talk about it, but I'm still a fan of the idea that, yeah, Hathor isn't just a servant of Asia, that he actually has his own mm-hmm. agenda too that kind of comes out along the way. But that's that's many chapters down the line. <laughs> uh, you know, to Mark Aramini, Hathor's connection to Zverian is all symbolic and, and not in the way that symbolism is really true. Wink, wink. He sees Hathor as an anti-Severian, everything the opposite. So he's short where Severian's tall. He's gray, not really white, but he's gray where Severian is dark and black. Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe. So maybe his connection to Thea, rather than an element of a first Severian story, which Mark doesn't truly buy into, is only significant because he's describing someone who is not Thecla, who is maybe in some ways an alternate Thecla. Yeah, and that goes with those ideas that works. Not that Hathor is the only thing about the chapter people want to talk about. When we were talking about Agia carrying an Athame dagger, a sorcerer's knife, I mentioned that I was not familiar with the Themamites, one of the groups known to use them, along with Wiccans and Satanists. Philip Bonner piped in to say that they were Aleister Crowley's occult group in the early 20th century. And on Reddit, Cody Martin had some input about the flower symbolism in this chapter. He says, the daisy and the moonflower are themselves symbolic of the sun and moon. Flowers in Dorcas's hair have changed in order to mirror the setting of the sun because she, like many women Severian loves, is symbolic of Earth. As she was revived by Severian, so will Earth be revived by the new sun. Hmm, that's a good one. I can definitely see how that, that works. And and that goes with another thing that has kind of come up more and more as we've been doing this, that that birds and flowers and trees or plants, like like there's a certain, mm-hmm. you can really take those in very literal or very explicit sort of symbolic directions a lot of times, more than I'd kind of ever realized mm-hmm. before, I think. So really trying to figure out what specific trees or specific birds mean can get you really far, mm-hmm. more than more than I thought, especially in New Sun, I feel like. And in Castle the Otter, uh, Wolf pointed out that Trees and flowers are sun symbols in mm-hmm. their way. Yep. Yeah. Gunhans talks about Severian's mullings over Gurlow's messages. Remember, I argued that Wolf is basically vamping here. Vamping beautifully, like a Jerry Lee Lewis piano break, but vamping nonetheless to fill out a short chapter. And Gunhans disagrees. He says, Master Gurlow's lesson is a direct commentary about how Severian feels about the fact that he knows the client. Agalus in this case. His questions about mercy, justice, and vengeance are directly applicable. He steals himself against his nervousness, feelings of sympathy and mercy, but also against the idea that he might be striking in vengeance rather than as an impartial deliverer of justice. I took it that Severian 
at this point in the book, still believes in the pure, quote, ideals of his guild and worries that he might be perverting those ideals in some way. On Severian's comments on the degeneracy of mercy, Gunhans adds, it's interesting that he comments on mercy as failing to perform justice. It is the very crime that sent him into exile. He thinks that, quote, as far as Wolf's quality writing goes, the sex scene was tragic, but the late night rumination on justice, mercy, and death was pretty good stuff in my book. Point taken, Gunhans. Mm-hmm. To Severian's defense, though, he does consider the mercy he showed to Thecla to be a terrible crime and betrayal of the guild. It's kind of, yeah, well, true, but it is what it is, man. <laughs> Sean Michael Robinson thinks the reference to the guy having the lumpy head of an intellectual is evidence that phrenology is alive and well in the Commonwealth. But he's really excited about the chapter 29 point where Severian describes Agia and Agalus in the cell. Quote, there was a tiny window high up in the wall behind them, and from it, suddenly as though the ridge of a roof or cloud had now fallen below the sun, a beam of light came to bathe them both. I looked from one aureate face to the other. That's golden face. And then later, Severian notes that the same narrow beam of light now on Agalus's hands had, quote, given his head and Agia's an aureole a few moments before. An, an aureole, of course, is the that golden light from saints' heads yeah. you see in old paintings. Sean says, I am finally convinced the golden sun imagery seems clear to me and consistent, so far as I've considered it, across the books. I do believe these solar symbols are intended to be familial markers. That is, they are the marks of Severian's family members. So hmm. as to which family members this duo might be, I reserve judgment. But your discovery of the identity of Cadro, the potential name relationships to Kazdo and her family who are hunted by the Alzabo, points the way to the solution. The evidence of their relationship to the anti-New Sun forces of the village of the wizardry seem crystal clear as well. Thanks to the weapon breakdown and the analysis of the symbols etched on the ground, this is an incredibly convincing accumulation of evidence to me and begins to position Agia as a sort of anti-Severian, someone gifted with many of his abilities, but twisted and curled inward instead of growing outward. Well, that you know, that does sound hopeful to me as well. Yeah, if we there's some way we could get Agia to be Severian's sister, like to be the twin, um, mm-hmm. because we know there's a twin name out there. To me, that would go a long way towards that, like I said, that sort of question about why is she so single-mindedly obsessed with killing him? And plus, there's also a lot of fun psychoanalytic things you could do there about <laughs> twins and different different aspects of a personality fighting against each other. Um, but yeah, it's still I'm still a long way from actually getting Asia into his family. But I don't know. I mean, maybe there's something about that with why Agilus is her twin, but is wearing a mask and something about the mask. I don't know. I don't know that he's the he's a fake or a false Severian that she made for herself. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I do like the idea. <laughs> and and I'm very yeah. 
intrigued and, and happy that somebody else is starting to put things together because maybe they'll find something else later that will bring it all back. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So I'm excited. Yeah, it's hopeful. I don't know what to do with it, but Sean says he's on the hunt for references and symbols related to terms like gold and golden and transformed by the sun. He also says regarding the golden aerials, the only other gold descriptors so far as I can recall have been for Agia's skin in the early morning light and Dorcas's skin. Have I missed any so far? I, actually, I do think you have, and there are others. And I'll, since he's on the lookout, I'm sure I'll be on the lookout as well. On the subject of aerials, I can only note off the cuff that at one point Thecla had her hair done up in a bun that formed a dark aerial around her head. I remember this because Severian said that the way her hair was, it made her look more like Thea than ever, and it was turning her into a sexual goo. So, hmm. but I don't know. Is that, is are there any gold references to Owen or any gold references, say, to the maid at the elevation ceremony? There's so little about Owen. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't think so. And the maid, I'd have to, we should, I should reread that, but I'm not sure. Or Sean can go reread it and find it for us. <laughs> Do the work. <laughs> well, maybe just because whether they are family or not doesn't mean they aren't a signifier of something. Sure. I think they are a signifier of something. That's a little too on the nose to have the light come down on their heads and light them in golden light and, and put aerials around their heads and that says something. I don't know what it is, Wolf. Although somebody was just talking about Wolf and and oh, it was uh, I think it was Vasily who was talking about Wolf and and iconography, and that would be awesome if every important figure was presented as an icon. Oh yeah. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could actually arrange everybody in some kind of? Oh icon? yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Callum McPherson whose name is famous for being awesome, has recently got around to listening to Chapter 29 episode as well. He thinks the snarling face surrounded by writing sounds like the image of a coin. He thinks this could be significant. Quote, given what we know about Wolf's use of coins in the text, time travel, and Agia's upcoming links to Vodalus or possible ties to First Severian. Speaking of colors, I asked last episode why Severian was always noting the color of the mantle that he bought at the rag shop, the brown mantle, regardless of whether he wore it or Dorcas wore it. And Sean says that the color always reminded him of the story of the armager's daughter, who always wore brown in all of her various disguises. As long as we're bringing that up, I mean, how can we forget the brown book itself? On Twitter, new listener... Jack Redelfs is consuming episodes at a rapid pace. Speaking of great names, Craig, with a moniker like that, Jack sounds like a natural for your weird Christmas podcast. <laughs> anyway, he knocked out seven episodes in about two days. Amazing. He had a lot to say, uh, most of which I'm going to save for when we do our Shadow of the Torture summary episode. After unloading a thread on Twitter, he jumped over to Facebook. He had questions about the goodness or badness of the heroes, whether Increate was our Increate, whether each universe had a Demiurge and Jehovah is our God. I don't know if he got to the Jack Dan bonus episode yet, but it seems like his thing. He was pleased to see some fellow Earthlisters, but he had one comment about the chapter seven episode. He says, you wonder, quote, why are washed out 
autarchs castrated after the test. He says, maybe for the same reason why aspiring renters pay application fees as a way to weed out unserious applicants. Maybe heroes have busy lives and no time for monkey business. <laughs> I don't know. They live outside of time. On the other hand, they only live about 20 years max, so he may have a point. It could be. Yeah. I mean, in the book, yeah. they, they give the straightforward thing that you can't start a, a lineage, right? That you can't have a an heir or a successor, and it always has to be someone who's from somewhere else. But I, mm -hmm. I like the idea too, that that's, that sort of means that if people really know what's going on, they're going to have to take it seriously. Right. I, I don't know that, that never really, I, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to rehash that. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of needled us a little bit about maybe opening up, up the idea to more broad theories and which geek said, well, look, we're leaving something out, you know, bring it on. <laughs> That's what these uh, other threads are for. Yeah. And he talked about us, I think, and we probably did this a whole lot more in the beginning where we kept insisting that, yeah, Severian was definitely going to bring the new son and therefore he is, he is perfectly a good figure. And we didn't really talk at all about, yeah. And by the way, he's going to flood the whole planet and, you know, <laughs> and, and all the other stuff that goes <laughs> well, along we, with it. We, I mean, it's it did mention. It, yes. Yeah. yeah. But no, he's, he's absolutely right. And as we get more of the bigger picture, uh, I think we'll have a little more to, to say to puzzle out how those things work. Cause I'm, I, I'm not totally decided on that. In fact, I, I gave a really vague waffling <laughs> response where I'm like, yes, it's kind of both <laughs> and neither. Um, but yeah, right. about the idea that in what he was talking about was, was what about the idea that all of this is not like first Severian helping himself become a good, right. a good person. But what about the idea that the high rows are really just manipulating everybody and that Severian's really not doing anything good. And it's just all of the, the, prophetic or religious overtones are just a way to make it seem important. And by that, that's, I always consider that sort of in general, the Peter Wright version, the, that he outlines mm -hmm. in attending yeah. Daedalus. Yeah. Uh, but there are different versions of that. There's the sort of, uh, negative Gnostic version where this whole world is sort of an evil demiurge and, and maybe the increase mm -hmm. is, or, or this whole world was created by an evil demiurge and the increase kind of shining light through or the outsider or something like that. Um, but still in which everything that seems good is actually false. So it's kind of the opposite of sort of a, re right. a religious apologetic kind of, of work. Yeah. And I, uh, part of the reason I wanted to do this was to really face a lot of those issues more head on later on. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I think, I do think that sort of taking it in the end as either Severian is for all intents and purposes, a Christ figure, not actually Christ, but a Christ figure is a little too simple. But I also think the idea that it's all just supposed to look that way and it's totally false. I think that's too easy too. like, I, I think that Wolf's intentionally yeah. making it hard to say that this is all one or the other. And this is also something you and I were, were talking about too, that I think we both probably come down on the side that we our, our tendency or our instinct is not necessarily to see that Wolf put his own faith in the background of this world. Like, I think there are a lot of readings of Wolf and reactions where, well, no, ultimately the sort of bedrock reality behind any world that Wolf creates has to follow his own faith, whatever that happens to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm not convinced 
that that's necessary in in a made up world. And it's even possible that doing things where or creating alternate worlds where that's specifically not the case may let him deal with other issues. Like he says, I mean, Wizard Knight was for him. What would a world of chivalry be like without Christianity? Right. Um, So does that mean that that the true God is buried somewhere behind Mythgarther? Well, maybe, but also maybe not. Maybe he just specifically said, yeah, there's it's a thought experiment. And we'll play with it that way. So, so yeah. So the, all those assumptions about what kind of theology is actually being presented in the work, or especially what kind of theology has to be there some way. I'm kind of want to put that stuff to the side and just see what the book and the story itself says before, before making assumptions about where it has to go. Yeah. And I think we're going to talk about more of this when we get to the end of shadow and we kind of do a summary of Mm -hmm. what we, what have we learned so far? So, Anyway, you gave him a little pushback and uh, Jack said, well, maybe this post is a kind of primal scream therapy of sorts, because I thought I had <laughs> Book of the New Sun all figured out. And after a few episodes, I feel like I don't know as much as I thought I knew. But, but dude, that's I get it. what makes the show so compelling. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, is that, you know, we're sort of spread this out. Like, I know that I know that when I've listened to some podcasts and kind of binge them, you really quickly get the people's habits and their ticks and, and that sort of ideas that they run to probably better than they do. Because when it's spread out over time, we don't necessarily hear ourselves saying the exact same thing right over and over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again. So that's actually kind right. of cool. So if there is something he notices like that, like you guys keep saying this one idea over and over again, you never really explain why. That's cool. Let us know. And because I'm, there's right. tons yeah. of things where I'm positive, unconscious that we're doing and we want to know. Sure. On Instagram, we got a direct message from a listener, Blau Cheese. I'll, I'll just say he, he just finished reading the book of the new son and he just got caught up with the podcast and he has some notes to offer. One, he says, I'm just assuming it's a he and sorry, Blau Cheese. With Wolf fans, that's a good guess. <laughs> it helps. It is a good guess. One, you frequently refer to mate, national beverage of Argentina, as matcha, Chinese green tea powder, which is a different beverage. Oh, that's probably my fault. Yeah, if anyone's made that mistake, it's probably you. <laughs> but I find it hard to believe that you make that mistake frequently. Then again, you know, I didn't go back to tabulate whether blau cheese is wrong. So I suppose I should just let it go. I probably did. My wife likes matcha, so we have it in the house a lot. So I very well may have done that. Yep. You have betrayed Wolf. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Two, possible historical connections between the guild's Fulgen robes. He has a quote from the Amazon.com summary of the book Black Robes in Paraguay by William F. Janiki. I'm just guessing at the pronunciation. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Quote, in colonial South America, the Jesuits established missions among the Guarani, which is a remote tribe. As the Portuguese and Spanish slavers descended on Paraguay, the Jesuits sought to protect these Stone Age Indians in their missions. He says, I don't know much of this history, but I think it is at very least an interesting look at Catholicism in the region's in which we suspect the Book of the New Sun is set. It seems like the type of history that may have piqued Wolf's interest. Note that mate, again, is the traditional drink of the Guarani people. Craig, I think Blau Cheese is onto something. Not only the mate connection, but Jurupari 
is a traditional deity of the Gorani people. I don't know if I mentioned them when we, we were talking about uh, Jurupari in chapter 29. Additionally, there is a legend among the Gorani that the mother of the heavenly twins, sun and moon, was killed by the celestial jaguars. The twins were raised by the jaguars until a bird told them how their mother had been killed. Uh, the parallels start to break down after that. And incidentally, Apupunchao, the Incan sun god, Inti, sometimes is called Apu Inti, meaning supreme Inti, or maybe literally head Inti, for all I know. He wore a punchao, a headband. The word literally means day. Also, there's Apu Inti, often called the lord of the day, and there's Churi Inti. Sun Inti, as in the boy child Inti. Sun Inti. I'll get more into that in the first Severian article that I'm working on, which you suggested, Craig, because I was starting to confuse even you when I tried to demonstrate to you that everything I argue about the first Severian, that Thea was a woman that he ate, that he was definitely Marubius, and the Equestra Marubius is from the first Severian, and he was the conciliator of our Severian's history, and he was Apupunchao that Severian encounters at the end of Claw, the conciliator. All these are just logical, textual extensions of recognizing that there was a first Severian as described at the end of Citadel, and that he was active in Severian's life. Anyway, Churi Enti, son of the day, son of the son of the sun god. Hmm. Pretty cool. Anyway, Blauchis has another point to offer. Three, Borges's short story, Talon Ukbar Orbis Tertius, is worth a read with Book of the New Sun in mind. Uh, you can get this story, by the way, in Borges's um, Labyrinth collection. I I'd love to do a close reading of that collection with you sometimes, Craig, because the stories are so densely philosophical, and frankly, mm -hmm. I get lost in it. If only we had a place where we could do extra episodes or something. Hmm. Well, we'll have to. Someone <laughs> will have to work on that. <laughs> Talan and Ukbar are places, and Orbis Tertius is a kind of cabal. But Blauchis offers us a quotation. Caceres had dined with me that night and talked to us at length about a great scheme for writing a novel in the first person using a narrator who admitted or corrupted what happened and who ran into various contradictions so that only a handful of readers, a very small handful, would be able to decipher the horrible or banal reality behind the novel. From the far end of the corridor, the mirror was watching us, and we discovered, with the inevitability of discoveries made late at night, that mirrors have something grotesque about that. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Blau Cheese. Uh, this is really all very illuminating. And that also gets to um, the, uh, oh, shoot, the the imaginary creatures, the mirror people, which would mm -hmm. be... Yeah, no, the, the mirrors, everything comes in. Actually, yeah. there's so many parallels in that book, so I'm just saying. Craig, we got a new review on Apple Podcasts. Very cool. This one's from Captain Crozier. The title is Don't Come Looking for Answers. <laughs> As the only person I know who has read Book of the New Sun, the format of this podcast is perfect. Do I agree with the interpretations provided? Rarely. Do I come away from each listen with new perspectives on this wild ride of a story? Absolutely. 
James and Craig each bring a wealth of esoteric knowledge to the table, which has illuminated many of the details which make Wolf's work so rich and ripe for discussion. As a first-time Wolf reader, these discussions have been invaluable for me to gain a greater appreciation of the text. Thanks for putting in the time. Don't bother listening if you want questions answered. Five stars. <laughs> Sweet. Well, far far be it from me to look a five-star <laughs> review in the mouth, but we've answered a lot of questions here, Craig. I mean, typically, we provide more than one answer to I was gonna any say, question. That's so. exactly right. <laughs> but that's very cool. Thank you so much for that. As much as it'd be fun to say, we convinced everyone that we're right. That's the, the idea that, <laughs> that someone disagrees, but they still want to keep listening because it's fun disagreement. I mean, that's part of the reason behind the Curiosity Earth is stuff and all the, the everything mm-hmm. else to bring all those different perspectives right. there. Yeah. Absolutely. So great. Yeah. So thank you so much for the review. Yeah, thanks. Oh, today, Craig, our boy truly becomes a man. He takes his first head. Uh, Although technically, we don't know exactly how that axe came down on the volunteer in the necropolis. For all I know, he was missing a head as well. Anyway, (laughs) Agalus gets his head removed. And look, we're the spoiler podcast, so I'm just going to spoil this episode too. Severian makes no mention at this point about the black bands. As Sean Michael Robinson noted on Facebook, Sean argued that this should put pay to any crazy idea that Agalus was wearing a mask. But as I noted in the chapter 29 episode, those black bands can hardly have been anything but holding on to a mask. As far as I can tell, they can't be tattoos, as Robert Borsky theorized. They aren't metaphors, as Michael Andre Driesi proffered. When Severian examines them up close in the rag shop, he says Agulus is wearing another mask. And yet, Severian does not elaborate on the purpose of the bands either in the cell, where he does reference them, nor on their existence or non-existence when he removes Agulus's head. So, Craig, I want to propose that the way to answer this question is not, what were those bands? We know what they were, Severian tells us. The question is, why does Severian deliberately omit a detailed discussion of Agulus's mask? What would be his motivation for that? In the past, he's taken a while to admit that he killed the volunteer and that he and Thecla had sex, I think, and that he theoretically could have rescued Thecla if he had had the guts to swear off an organization that he deep down hated but was the only family that he knew. Could he have survived? I've argued that he probably could not have hired a boat to escape, but Severian would likely not have had the scruples against killing the crew and probably could have done it. As Neil Gaiman said, Craig, these books have a way of reforming themselves in your mind over time. Anyway, what is so shameful about Agalus's true identity that Severian would not have addressed his investigations into it? That's the way I see it. He definitely came to understand that Dorcas is his grandmother, and although his narrative gives us enough information that we can put that together, he never spells it out. I'll propose a curiositous earthus here. Aglis's true identity is at least as shameful to him as that. The circumstances did not come together in time for me to have the confidence, as I think I do now, to ask these sorts of questions to Wolf directly. I don't know if he'd have answered, but I wish I'd asked them. 
Anyway, never mind. We have enough other details in this story that <laughs> Severian does elaborate on to keep us busy. For instance, Severian is young. Yes, he's a really young guy. He's very, very young. This is something people talk about a lot, but we're finally going to get into it now. Chapter 31, The Shadow of the Torturer. Hey, wait a minute. We've already read Shadow of the Torturer. Oh, no, that's the book we're reading. Yes, it's the self-titled. <laughs> this is what it's all about right here. <laughs> so before we get into the details of the story, I want to think about that title, because we never talked about Shadow of the Torture as a title before. So now it seems a good time to do it. So I've got a few ideas, and I've been thinking about when it's a good place to introduce some ideas from Jung, and it's a kind of archetypal, allegorical reading, and this seems as good a place as any. So just a couple things to think about why why that's such an important phrase is, is to be the title. And we're going to find out here in a minute that where it literally shows up in the text is it's literally Severian shadow that falls on the block of wood that's going to go underneath Agilus's neck. And he talks about in the beginning how he's constantly trying to make sure that his shadow is falling on that block as the, while he's standing there, you know, looking all ominous for things to come in. So that's the literal image of it that we get. And he doesn't ever really wax poetic about it. It's, he doesn't really, you know, in the text, he's never going to just come out and, you know, go off on one of his philosophical rants about that phrase, which I kind of you know, it struck me as odd that there are so many other things that he does, but it's sort of, it's weird that he doesn't do that. Seems like something that Wolf might have been wanting to do. At least I would have thought he would want to, but obviously he's, he's the better writer. And so he has the ideas about how to put his stuff together. But anyway, so that's the first thing. We also then get another place in this chapter where he's going to literally sort of mention blocking out the sun because he talks about right as he's about to strike off Agilus's head. He says, I lifted my sword forever blotting out the sun. Literally what he means is forever blotting out the sun from Agilus, but that's also perfectly metaphorical, symbolic kind of statement right there. That when a torturer or an executioner is in the act of something, you know, is he blocking out God? Is he blocking out goodness or something like that? You don't know. But it's it certainly is a, a phrasing that has to have those kinds of resonances too. But so here's where I get a little thinking about what shadows are. Every time he talks about it, in most places here, he's talking about specifically blotting out the sun. I mean, and this is obvious, but a shadow is something that is tied to light. A shadow implies light, right? Because you can't have a shadow unless there's some other light that's casting something. That reminds me of a phrase that came up in chapter 24 when Severian's talking about something from the Brown book. And he says that it, the phrase is like something like, all things emanate from the increate, surely. And the theologians say that light is the increate shadow, that light is its shadow. And it's a really cool phrase because it's a kind of paradoxical thing that light you know, even God is so much higher or so much brighter than light that light itself is the shadow. But what's kind of cool about that is it's still talking about shadows and this sort of weird opposite kind of thing, like like not just talking about shadows as something dark or scary, but really reminding you that even when there's a shadow, there's something light. So a shadow is not just something absent. It's, it's an absence that always connects to something that's there. So that's obvious, but I, I don't stress it really a lot because then if you, if you add in how Jung talks about what a shadow is, 
I feel like you start to get a lot of maybe really interesting things to do here with Severian and to think about what this phrase means. And I have to admit, I don't know if Wolf was a big young reader. Do you know, does he mention reading young in any interviews that you can think of? No, I do not remember Wolf ever mentioning. Yeah. But I know our Wolf's works specifically Catholic. Well, I know there's a lot of Catholic readers who definitely say so. And I will tell you that there's a lot of Jungian enthusiasts who read Wolf with glee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. So I can't say that this is what Wolf was thinking, but it's, is really interesting. So in Jung, one of the archetypes or one, it's not even an archetype. It's really just part of the, the self is the shadow. And what the shadow is, is really all the things about yourself that you repress, that you don't want to identify with, that you think of as different. That could be everything from like animal drives that you have, but it can also be just identifications you don't want to have. Like if you think of yourself as really macho masculine than anything feminine, you might try to kind of push away and not think about, and that would become part of your shadow. And part of Jung's whole psychological picture that he paints is of the shadow always making itself known if you're not sort of actively aware of how it's working. In other words, you know, the thing that you're most afraid of becoming is the one thing that you're probably always right on the edge of becoming if you're not really in a healthy state. Or it's the thing that, you know, the repressed always comes back. Those things that you're really trying to push down are always going to come back in really odd ways. And so therapy, the goal of therapy in in Jung or just becoming a healthy person is to start to understand your shadow, to to really make it more conscious, not so that you just give in to all these other drives or things that you don't like, but that you integrate them and you understand that, okay, I'm if I do want to see myself as really masculine, it doesn't mean that I have to oppose all these things that are feminine about me. It's just that I have to face them and, and sort of recognize reasons maybe why I want to do that. Um, there's a really cool quote actually about what it is from Young, And so I'll read that real quick. It says, the shadow is a moral problem that challenges the whole ego personality for no one can become conscious of the shadow without considerable moral effort to become conscious of it involves recognizing the dark aspects of the personality as present and real. This act is the essential condition for any kind of self-knowledge. So in other words, what he's saying is that for you to become a healthy individual in your behavior, and I think that's when he when he says moral here, he means kind of moral, but I also think of it in terms of just behavior. But you've also got to integrate all those things and be very aware of them so that you're not just unconsciously acting on all your, these fears and whatnot that you have. Okay, it's really cool. But then you think about the phrase that that Wolf has and the shadow of the torturer. So usually I would think that a torture would be something like if, if I really liked torture, if I was a sadist, that's the kind of thing I would probably go hide in my shadow. But here we have a torturer who now are the phrase is like, it's the shadow of the torture, the torturer's shadow. And you could kind of read that two ways. You could even think, either think of the shadow as the even darker side of the torture, or it could be all the good things. So like the fact that Severian has to suppress mercy, suppress talking about justice, right? That's one thing he does all the time is in the early parts of the book is he talks about how I'm not supposed to worry about justice. I'm just supposed to carry out my duty. So in other words, he's suppressing or repressing or putting all the questions about whether or not what he's doing is right or wrong. He's kind of pushing those into his shadow would be one way to think about it. So the reason I think that's kind of cool is because it gives us 
it's an image then of having a shadow that's actually really good things that all the things that you repress are maybe actually really good because it's sort of easier to act on these dark and evil things. And I don't know, I was joking with my wife who is, I I won't say she's a lapsed Catholic, but she was, I was talking about that idea and she's like, yeah, that sounds Catholic. (laughs) She's like, you know, the, the, all the guilt and everything is right on top, but, but the really good things about yourself, you always kind of repress, or at least you don't recognize that you're doing them because you always feel bad. I don't want a bad mouth Catholic, but (laughs) it's kind of a cool idea that maybe the shadow of a torturer is something that is better than a torturer, that it's Normally when I read the phrase, I think of a shadow of a torture as something dark or like the foreshadowing of the torture, or just like he kind of uses it in the sections here as sort of a reminder that something bad is about to happen to you. But we also know that the whole story is about Severian kind of coming to, to realize that there might be something about himself that is worth becoming the new son, right? And, and turning that around. And so on a Jungian sense, the shadow of a torture might actually be the conciliator in some ways. I just thought it was a cool way to turn that around. I don't know that that's the only way that you can think about what the shadow of the torture means, but I think it's really powerful if you think about how that fits into the whole thrust of Severian's journey throughout this whole thing. So I just wanted to keep that in mind. A little bit psychoanalytic there. There are a couple other things in the chapter here that I think are really cool, especially for the fact that we see Severian do his thing, but then right at the end of the chapter, the claw comes out. And so there's something really cool. Like there's this shining shadow that comes out towards the end. Well, this is a good place for a a, a climax of this volume of the novel. And I just say it is, it, it, if you're going to have a chapter called The Shadow of the Torture, this is really the place to do it. It somehow it, it does feel just right. Yeah. I think it's really cool that that image is the same chapter where we see him kill someone officially, but we also see the claw for the first time. And we see that symbol of absolute holiness or goodness or whatever, that it comes out in the same chapter that's called shadow of the torture. And I don't think that was accidental. The claw and the sword. And I'm not sure what exactly he's going at in the text on this, but they come in to the story together in the sense that he finally uses it as he's supposed to. And then he discovers the claw and they go out together. The sword is broken at the same time. The claw is broken. Yeah. And that actually has some things to do, I think with, how Severian's kind of overcoming symbolism in a certain way, but that's maybe a, a different story altogether. But but maybe that's kind of, I mean, to use Jung's terms, that's kind of like integration. When you get over sort of having all these reflections or symbols of things that you think are super good or super bad, that's when you, you become healthy. But that's when you stop really being unhealthy or not being able to control the things is when you recognize them for what they are. And so they're not as powerful once you can sort of disenchant those symbols. And I don't know, maybe there's something to that later on, but there may also be something more particular to Severian's story. Okay, so Severian left the Manichin 13 days after the Feast of Holy Catherine. He had a duel the next day where Agilus saw Severian get up from an Avern strike, and then he uh, tried to run away, he killing nine people with his flower weapon. 
The next day, they approached Severian about performing the execution. Now it's 16 days since Severian was elevated, three days since Master Palamon gave him Terminus Est, and now he already gets to use it. So as tradition dictates, Severian stands on the scaffold without his cloak, shirtless, wearing his mask, his sword unsheathed. He does this for some significant time before Agilus is brought out. And there's a guild tradition that this symbolizes, quote, the unsleeping omnipresence of justice. <laughs> it's also cool. He doesn't have Fulogen up there with him, right? If he's not wearing his cloak. Well, his pants. He's wearing pants. Fulogen pants. Uh, that's, I guess that's true. That's true. But um, are the pants Fulogen? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's one thing. They are. Okay. Okay. But yeah, so that is there. But it's. But yeah, it's not all black. He's not standing there. Instead, the black, I mean, just to play with all the light and darkness thing, the shadow and the darkness that we're going to see is him casting it, and it's not just his cloak. And it's his black pants and his whitey, white, white skin. Mm -hmm. And his mask. I guess we do have the mask as well. Yeah. You know, when the guild talks about justice, they often sound a lot like the tick. <laughs> You're probably wondering what it's like to wear the tights of justice. Well, it's tingly and it's uncomfortable and it gets the job done and oh, the job of it. <laughs> Your crime wave has crashed on the shores of justice. <laughs> He's like, we are a justice sandwich. No toppings necessary. <laughs> yeah. I write wrongs and pound two-fisted justice into the hearts of evildoers everywhere. <laughs> Honk if you love justice. Well, anyway, Severian thinks that there's a more practical reason for the tradition. He says it's, quote, to give the crowd a focus and the feeling that something is about to take place. Because he says a crowd is not the sum of the individuals who compose it. Rather, it's a species of animal without language or real consciousness, born when they gather, dying when they depart. Now, that idea actually is not so out there. There's a whole book um, I had to read in a course in grad school called Crowds and Power by um, a guy named Elias Canetti, I think was his name. It was a, a real sort of sociological study about how mobs and crowds kind of function on their own logic. And that there are times, you I mean, people talk about getting caught up in the crowd or getting caught up into it, but the, he was actually able to sort of map out how you know, mobs, you can start to look at them as if they're operating on their own logic instead of sort of based on the, the decisions of individual people. It's a really weird idea that it becomes this sort of organism in itself that, that does things. Um, but yeah, he's so Wolf's not alone in that idea. I had no idea if he read that book or he would need to. I mean, it's a it's a common insight. But yeah, so people have actually studied that. I only know the avalanche has started and it's too late for the pebbles to vote. <laughs> so yep. there's some Demarchi surrounding the scaffold with lances, probably the sci-fi electric glowing lances. In fact, that's exactly what they are. Hmm. Their officer has a pistol. And while we don't know much about these pistols, Severian figures he could kill 50 or 60 people before the mob could overwhelm him and take it from him. Which is a pretty powerful pistol. Yeah, it's probably automatic. <laughs> yeah. uh, Severian says, quote, Still, it is better to have a focus and some open symbol of power. Remember, this is happening next to the sanguinary fields, and that is one of the better quarters of the city. Expensive real estate always has the best city services. <laughs> so yep. sanguinary field is the equivalent of having an open air, douchey shopping area <laughs> nowadays. So there are not just poor people. Severian sees a lot of yellow and red silk 
and clean faces, washed with scented soap. Severian and Dorcas, on the other hand, had to take a bath at the well by splashing water on themselves. He says the well-off are, quote, slower to violence than the poor, but once roused are far more dangerous because they are not accustomed to being overawed by force. He says, despite the demagogues, they have a good deal more courage. That is, whatever you've heard from populist propagandists, the wealthy aren't cowards, just the opposite. Is this Severian's opinion or is it Wolf's? I mean, it's impossible to say and, you know, who cares? It's Severian's opinion for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also a weird point about why he's so worried here about violence in the crowd. Like, it seemed like everybody would just want to come and support him. But I guess I guess the immediate thing would be worrying that Agilus had supporters or that all of a sudden people decide that the person to be executed you know, was innocent or wasn't worth it. And so they're all going to rebel and fight against him. Is that what he's worried about? Yeah. I think the main thing is that you don't know what they're going to do. They're another animal. Yeah. And that once it decides to go off, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I guess the only other time we've really, in the book, that it's come up about sort of public chaos or something like that was when the one officer is worried that he's causing a panic because he's mm-hmm. wearing a torture. Right, right, on, on the bridge. Torture's yeah. habit. But otherwise, it it just seems like, why is this situation going to cause a riot? And I, the thing I'm thinking about is, like, is he is the undertone or the implication here that there are a lot of people who think that tortures and execution are not something that should be going on. And so they're they're going to rebel in some way or, or that, I don't know, it just seemed like an odd point for Severian to all of a sudden start to worry about public order. Well, it could be that Severian is just blowing up his role. <laughs> yeah, I guess that could be sort of the, you know, I am the symbol of power, right? There's something, there's definitely something to that right there. But, you know, but in the end, an authoritarian government's only claim to legitimacy is that they can maintain order and they maintain order to preserve that legitimacy. You know, simple disorder itself is a threat to the established order. This isn't a democracy in the Commonwealth. This is a dictatorship. A riot is an important opportunity for a rebellion to organize against the government. And I guess the torture is actually everything we know about him and, and not changing decisions and not worrying about justice, but just that we obey, right? They they internalize that in their very core. So I guess it does make sense then that, that Severian would be feeling that. Mm-hmm. A riot is an opportunity for a rebellion to organize against the government. What was an undirected disorder can suddenly, you know, be directed while the authorities are off balance. They're, they're constantly concerned about any large group of people as potential rivals. Uh, this is something I learned from friends from, say, you know, Iran. There's no legitimate way to publicly criticize the government in a peaceful way mm-hmm. in a dictatorship. So the only criticism comes during and in the context of these times when the authorities have completely lost control. So, you know, it doesn't matter why it would happen. Just a drunken brawl could be a threat. Yeah, that makes sense. So here's Zavarian standing shirtless with his hands resting on the quillions of Terminus Est as he turns this way and that. He moves the chopping block so his shadow will fall on it at the right moment, as you said. Um, quillions, in this case, refers to the cross guard of his, of his sword. The Chiliarch is watching the whole thing from a window. Remember that he was Agilus's judge. He doesn't see Agia in the crowd. Dorcas is at the steps of the Hall of Justice. Severian got the port reeve to reserve that place for her. 
The fat half exultant, that Severian saw the night before, is right up front to the scaffold, just as close as he could get. And he's almost touching the burning, you know, whatever it is on the Demarchi's lance. His hungry-eyed girlfriend is at his right, and the gray-haired woman on his left. Severian has that gray-haired woman's handkerchief tucked in his boot. So apparently he's not above earning a little bit of extra money by selling souvenirs. Yeah, because it seemed he was kind of dismissive of that um, mm-hmm. in the last chapter, but nope. It turned out her money spends just as well. Mm-hmm. The little intellectual who gave Severian the silver Asimi and Hathor are not around. I wonder if the little man was Hathor's associate. He doesn't see them, but he assumes they could be around somewhere. Hmm. But I've always asked how Hathor, the poor sailor, got money to finance Ajia's mercenaries. Maybe Hathor killed the little man. Ajia specifically referred to hooking up with him because that way she got to use his silver. I don't know, because I wonder, too, if he gets money by using the creatures to, you know, attack people or steal mm. or something. He doesn't seem like what someone... Mean, like, like sell animal? No, no, no. Like to... It's Hathor's pet shop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking like, you know, to take the nodules out and like set them loose on somebody and then you can, mm. you know, steal their stuff oh. afterwards. I don't know. But yeah, because he doesn't seem like the type who would carry around coffers or something like that. Right. It's hard to say. So now here comes Agilis from the Hall of Justice, led by four sergeants in, quote, high dress helmets. The helmets have red plumes. Their armor is polished steel. The, they split the crowd as they come. The crowd just opens for them. They don't have to fight their way through. Here it's noted that Agilis has brown hair. Not surprising, since he's supposed to be Ashia's twin. He also has, quote, a wide boyish face, which is tilted up, but not in defiance. It's because his chains are holding his arms and they're forcing his shoulder blades together. Severian thinks, quote, I remember how elegant he had looked in the armor of a guard's officer with the golden chimera splashed across his chest. It seems tragic that he could not be accompanied now by men of the unit that had in some sense been his. Hmm. Playing with a little dramatic irony yeah. there. Yes. And I, but I find this to be an interesting passage. I, I know it's Christian, but I'm really inclined to feel like these things are in some sense true. We don't know where he's from. Perhaps he is a former soldier. He says, quote, silly old women believe the pan judicator punishes us with defeats and rewards us with victory. I felt I had been given more reward than I desired. I don't know, Severian, you're just talking to Agilis about how much you hate him, man. <laughs> now you're all bittersweet towards him. So this is kind of off topic, but the, when you mentioned Proust, it reminded me, thinking of how, I mean, Proust, Remembrance of Things Past starts with him having the cookie, eating the Madeline cookie, and then talking about how his memory sometimes overtakes him and how he'll just, it'll, mm-hmm. it'll just flood him back with everything else. That's also how this book starts, right? With Severian saying, I have a perfect memory. Yes. And also talking about how when he has those memories, he's overwhelmed, right? And, and just lost in those memories. And that's precisely what Bruce did too. So it's just, I never made that sort of direct connection before. I should have. I was always thinking more in terms of just generic, like general style. <laughs> but that's even people who haven't read 
Proust know that part about the cookie. So of course that would be the, the memory thing is so obvious. Anyway, that clicked to me earlier this week and I was like, oh, sure. duh. Why didn't I ever think about that? And that one's all about time as well. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. We were, we were talking about great expectations. I think now we have to go read all seven volumes of search of lost time. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Just for wolf possibilities. <laughs> I probably will do that. I'm afraid, but you know, this is kind of similar to his other memory gaps where he suddenly has a turn completely opposite of where he's been before. Yeah. It's pretty scant. And I know some people are going to hate me for it, but you can bet I don't blame him at all. But when I put together my universal first Severian biography, don't be surprised <laughs> if Agilus is in the military and he and Severian were friends. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Also, pan judicator means the judge of all. After the ceremony, the soldiers force him to his knees. Severian says, I lifted my sword, as you said, forever blotting out the sun. And that is forever from uh, Agilus's point of view. He says, when the blade is as sharp as it should be, and the stroke is given correctly, one feels only a slight hesitation as the spinal columns part, then the solid bite of the edge into the block. So that hesitation that Severian mentions when a head is chopped off, it calls back Severian's ceremony when he was elevated, when he felt the same thing when Catherine's head was chopped off, right? Right. She spoke again from the floor at my feet, and her voice seemed to ring in my ears, strike and fear not. With such strength as I was capable of, I sent the false blade down. For an instant, it seemed to me that it met resistance. Then it thudded into the block, which fell into two. The maid's head, all bloody, tumbled forward toward the watching brothers. What do you make of that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But But there is a theory that he actually chops off her head, that she's actually a robot. Right. So... And then she picks it up. Yep. So it yeah. could be, you know, it could be just part of the magic trick, right? That somehow it's uh, it's designed to have that realistic feel for when you chop off it. Yeah. Or it's a robot. But it definitely also feels like a weird Wolfian confirmation of, yeah, that was real. I would have taken an oath that I smelled Ajlis's blood on the rain-washed air before his head banged into the basket. The crowd drew back and then surged forward against the leveled lances. That bit about the crowd is really, really good. Yeah, and it's also every detail he talks about here is completely depersonalizing Agilus, right? It's all in terms of mm-hmm. the satisfaction of my blade being you know, well-sharpened, and I did this right, and the satisfaction of knowing that it, it clicked through the right way, and the right. things did well, and then that he gets praise from the crowd reacting in the way that they're supposed to. Yeah, it just, it stands out as just so over-professionalized and just not thinking about the mm-hmm. the thing that I think most people would be thinking about <laughs> right at that point, <laughs> that you just killed a dude. The fat half exultant makes a distinct exhalation. He says, it's precisely the sound that Severian figures he'd makes when he climaxed as he, quote, sweated over some hired woman. Mm, 
And again, that's that's the recognition of what actually happened. And it it doesn't come from Severian. It comes from this guy who is mm-hmm. lusting after it, right? Oh, I was say it's all messed up. Like like there's no humanity to Agilus at anything going on. It's so well done. And then Severian hears Agia scream from far away. He says, Agia's voice as unmistakable as a face seen by lightning. Something in its timbre made me feel she had not been watching at all, but had known everything nonetheless when her twin died. (sighs) Craig, this is all very convincing to me that they were twins of some kind. But what's Mm -hmm. the deal with those bands? There's there's no mention of them here. There's no resolution anywhere. Yeah. No hope of one. Yeah, you think if he cut off his head, he'd find out what they connected to. Yeah, it's time to get a look at those bands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, that's that's always frustrated me still that we don't get any more about them. On the other hand, it's not clear whether as twins they share, you know, twin empathy, so that, that you know, with one you know feels a pain that the other feels it. Or if they have some other you know, right. connection between each other. I guess the former is probably more likely. But given the robot Ashia discussions, we can't ignore the possibilities that they share souls in some other way. Yeah. The question for me then is later on, we're going to talk about, you know, we find out Severa and Severian are twin names, right? And is there ever any moment where Severian has that kind of reaction? And I don't know. But the whole discussion of who Severian's twin is is going to be a big deal once we meet Kazdo. Yeah. Kazdo, Kadro, Dorcas. Yeah. Severian says that it's the end of the execution that is the tricky part. After you exhibit the head to the crowd, you can just drop it back in the basket. But the body is still draining blood. It has and has to be removed, quote, in a manner dignified yet dishonorable. Oh, the complexities of a torture. <laughs> and you can't just take away the body. You have to take it someplace where people won't be allowed to further abuse it. If the client was an exultant, then custom states that the body can be put on the saddle of his own destrier and that his remains are surrendered to his family at once. I should say this is the strongest argument that I can think of that the body in the Acropolis was positively not Thecla's. But as with all things in this book, that's not emphatic proof. So wait, are you, so with that part, are you saying that you. She's, she's an exultant. Why would she be buried in the Acropolis? Why didn't her family claim it? Oh, okay. I thought you were suggesting there that she had been executed or something. Well, she had been executed. Which I know she had, but I mean. Not publicly. Okay. I was thinking something else. Yeah. Okay. Yep. If you're not an exultant, then the body has to be taken someplace safe from the quote, ears of the dead. I think that's a metaphor, hopefully. (laughs) Obviously, we're talking about Baudelaire and other groups like them. And the body has to be dragged until it's out of sight of the crowd. Oh, here's something. So if you ever go to Disney World and you watch the parade and all everyone's up there, all all the the characters and all are sitting up on the, the float, waving their hands, dancing with the music and everything like that. They're going to continue doing that as long as anyone can see them. And there's like a yellow line that at one point in the in the route and that is the line that's the last moment when anyone can actually see them and that's when they know that they can stop waving so 
there's probably a yellow line wherever they're dragging him. He says, oh, okay, we, we, we can stop now that he's out of view. I'm a former cast member, if I haven't mentioned that before. So anyway, the body has to be dragged away. But the executioner can't do it because, you know, he has to carry the head and the sword. The soldiers, the officers of the court and such, are rarely willing to do it. At the Manichin, they had two journeymen do it, so no big deal. So what they do is have the body dragged away behind a baggage sumpter. A sumpter is a pack horse or a mule, a beast of burden. Probably it's not a real horse, but that's how it's used. Severian says that they didn't ask the animal how it felt about dragging or headless corpse, <laughs> but it was still got frightened by the blood and it tried to run off, dragging the body, I guess. Finally, the body got to be dragged to a quadrangle where the crowds were prohibited. A quadrangle is a courtyard with buildings on four sides, thus blocking the view of the public. Now, Severian is cleaning his boots and the Port Reeve comes up and he says he's not going to pay the fee because the Chiliarch wants to do that himself, which Severian recognizes as a special honor. The Port Reeve says the Chiliarch always watches everything and he was so pleased with Severian's work. So, Severian and Dorcas are welcome to stay in the Hall of Justice for another night. But Severian says that they're going to leave at twilight. That's under the cover of darkness because it's risky for a Carnifex to walk around after an execution. There's usually family or friends of the client who will want revenge. And, you know, this is part of Severian's informal training. This is also very true of what is happening. Because <laughs> <Asia laughs> is out there just waiting for him. To, to get him. But she's not going to, she's going to be a little more patient. Yeah. In actuality, they end up leaving after dark so that they could eat supper before leaving. Since it's night, they can't pass the wall and head for Thrax until morning. Also, there are no inns between the barracks and the wall, so they have to find a place to spend the night where people wouldn't know who they were. They'll leave for the gate the next day. They get directions, but, you know, of course, Severian gets lost. Finally, they get their bearings and head off quote, cheerfully. I assume we got our bearings means Dorcas says, um, I think it's that way. <laughs> the way the executioner is paid is that you throw the money down at his feet. And the Chiliarch apparently doesn't understand that. And he tried to hand it to Severian. Severian had to stop him for the sake of his reputation. Severian and Dorcas got a real laugh out of that. Oh, the crazy life of a torturer. <laughs> I gotta say that that the thing about like him laughing about that that it's customary to throw it down there. It's another moment here of Severian sort of mixing up symbol and reality, or sort of miss. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, granted, he's he's wanting to be very professional and do things the right way, but it's like that happens in private, doesn't it? Like it's not it's not like he's. Well, maybe it was. In, I don't know. Maybe it was in. Maybe maybe so. Yeah. I mean before. it. Could potentially see them, or maybe the yeah. Port Reeve would see them. It seems like the it's knows. the kind of thing that you would want to happen, that you would want to do if it was public. But if it was private, it's not that big a deal. But he's he's so very much wrapped up in making sure that he's doing things by the book that he doesn't quite understand when the symbol is appropriate and when it's just for show or something. Or, or not that necessarily he doesn't understand, but he's he's just so caught up in it that he's taking everything very seriously. Without maybe, I don't know. Well, I think it's interesting that they had to give Dorcas and Severian a little broom closet to sleep in because they couldn't give them a room because they would never yeah. be used again. And yet the Chiliarch is kind of unaware yeah. of this reputableness of 
a current effects yeah. or a torture. Yeah. He got paid a master's fee, more than twice the customary amount for a journeyman. Well, you know, those are Citadel prices, I guess. So, and also, uh, the people tips vary in pretty well. I'm sure the gray-haired woman got her handkerchief. Mm-hmm. So now he has more money than when he left the tower. He'd spent all his money on Nashio before. So now he's thinking that he can support the two of them by performing his trade on the way to Thrax. Dorcas mentioned something that Severian didn't. Uh, Severian threw up after the ceremony. Right. He told this story as, you know, Mr. Competent Executioner, but it wasn't really like that. Severian says, it was only nerves. I was afraid that something would go wrong. But Dorcas, who, remember, is a very good read of people, says, you pitied him. I know you did. And he says, "Ah, I suppose so. He was Ajia's brother and like her in everything except sex. Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that that not telling us that he threw up afterwards is weird. Like that, that could easily be a moment where you do the, you know, Severian is unreliable because he he doesn't lie, but he leaves things out, right? At the same time, though, the one problem I have with that is that he's still supposed to be the one writing this. And if he really wanted to hide that, he wouldn't have even had Dorcas say that that happened. So to me, that's that's where I always feel weird about what exactly is Severian leaving out? Because, I don't know, it feels like it's... I mean... As Wolf trying to suggest that he wants to hide things, that might be a kind of way to fudge it and say like, yes, Severian wants to hide things, but he has to let them come out at the same time. But if we're thinking of Severian as actually aware of what he's saying here, if he really wanted to hide it, he wouldn't even have written that. You know, so that's... Well, he wants to hide it, but he's just a terrible gossip. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's weird. It's where that that presentation makes it hard for me to always say with absolute sincerity if Severian is hiding something or if he's secretly letting something out or or sort of letting something out like unintentionally. I mean, I don't know. It's and, And it gets hard to know with the frame story here of how him how he's putting things forward. But... I don't know. I usually well, it does demonstrate that he's he's capable of leaving things. Out. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I I don't think based on like this scene that he would actually lie. Right, right. And it's very possible that he'll eventually tell us right. anyway. And I feel like when I read a passage like this, to me, if I'm really trying to take seriously the frame of Severian sitting down and writing this. The way I read this is Severian at the time was very sort of, you know, wanted to to look all professional and masculine. But the Severian now who's writing this knows that he was hiding it. And so that's kind of a cool way to make him hide it from one perspective, but then to actually have an older Severian showing his maturity by not leaving out Dorcas mentioning that. I don't know. It gets, it's, I'm just thinking of how different people try to sometimes say, like, how does Severian reveal more than he wants to, you know, in different parts of the book? And I, I don't know. I don't feel like he, every part of it has to be intentional on Severian's part, if you want to think that. So then revealing it is also intentional, if that makes sense. Like, it's, it's too easy to just say, I feel like, oh, yeah, Severian's trying to cover things up. Well, he's not. He's, told us right there by having Dorcas say that he told us what happened. Well, maybe he intended originally to cover it up and then he's, you know, he relented. 
He yeah. told us. That. Yeah. And that's what I think too. It's kind of like his, it's, if you think about it as Severian in two different times, and that's absolutely right. When he was young, he tried to cover it up, but now that he's older, he doesn't mind showing us the truth. And or, or even when he, when he begins writing this, this section of his memoir, his memoir, <laughs> you know, he's writing it, he writes this whole story and he, he was inclined to tell it as though he was like Mr. Super competent. But as he gets into telling it, you know, yeah. He wants to tell this story about Dorcas too. And so he has to say what she says. Yeah. And maybe he can't stop himself anyway. He's remembering yeah. and he just re- remembers mm-hmm. and records it like a little recording device once again. Anyway, this this thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Agilus was Agilus' brother and he, like her in everything except sex. If you read Severian's comment here ironically, which is often the right way to read the text, it opens up a world of bizarre possibilities, but I can't say what any of them are. So I'll just go on. <laughs> Dorcas notes that Severian misses Asia and maybe even likes her a lot. But Severian notes what we all know. He only knew Asia for a day. And during that whole time she was plotting his death, he says, quote, if she had had her way, I'd be dead now. One of those two averns would have been the end of me. And Dorcas says, but the leaf didn't kill you. Well, there's two ways to read this response. One is Dorcas defending Agia with the ultimate silver lining. Well, she tried to murder you with an alien plant, but it didn't kill you after all. What are a few leaves between friends? (laughs) The other is, hey, why didn't that leaf kill you? And that's the way Severian takes it. Severian has been deliberately avoiding thinking about that. And he says, I'll quote, My survival, just as a man suffering from a deadly sickness, manages by a thousand tricks never to look at death squarely, or rather, as a woman alone in a large house refrains from looking into mirrors and instead busies herself with trivial errands so that she may catch no glimpse of the thing whose feet she hears at times on the stairs. I had survived, and I should be dead. I was haunted by my own life. That, Craig, is an interesting comparison. It is indeed. First comparison's obvious. A man who's sick avoids thinking about the closeness of death. The other, though, is of a woman in an empty house paying no attention to some deadly ghost stalking her in mirrors and just out of sight. Now, if you're not compelled to the first Severian theory that it was not the claw mechanically and automatically turning on at appropriate moment, rather than a previous iteration of Severian manipulating his life from the world accessed by Father Aniri's mirrors, you know, then this is nothing to hang your hat on. The analogy here is poetic, but it's hard to say specifically why it is on point. But if you embrace the theory, this analogy for me becomes incredibly apt. And that's all I'm going to say. There's another way to take it that's also really apt. And it goes back to that Jungian shadow thing that what is haunting him was his own life. Well, what life is haunting him because he's, he's sort of pushed out the fact that he killed a guy just now and or that because he's the embodiment of death yeah and he's the embodiment of death and so it works with that whole sort of shadow that the thing that that a torturer has to repress is life 
there's all the the good things empathy and all the things he doesn't show agilis right here, like mercy <laughs> yeah. empathy you know all those things but i mean it it still it fits for that too also the mirrors this also implies potentially the theory that agia herself is an escapee from the botanic gardens through father aniri's mirrors there right yeah and that's something we didn't really talk about too much we haven't really brought that one up but that would be that would open up all kinds of things because then she could come from anywhere and anyone mm -hmm. and agilis could as well yeah yeah that's that's dang it agia there's just too much <laughs> so severian feels around the wound where the leaf hit him it seems to be scarring there's still a bit of scab but it doesn't hurt and Severian says, well, you know, the leaves don't kill, that's all. <laughs> and Dorcas says, but Agia said they did. And Severian says, well, she told a lot of lies, which you know is true, uh, which is the great obstacle of reading this book. But it's also the whole reason he just killed Agilus was because Agilus was swinging that thing around and killed nine people with the leaves. So yes, <laughs> they do kill. Trust me. Yeah. yeah. So this is still Severian trying not to think about something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's not looking in the mirror. So they're walking up a hill with a very slight slope. They are quote bathed in pale green moonlight. They're walking toward the wall. It looks like a black line. He says, quote, behind us, the lights of Nessus created a false dawn that died bit by bit as the light advanced. Severian stops on the hill to look at the lights, and they reflect again on the unnumbered masses living in Nessus and how far it is to Thrax. And he says, Thrax is, quote, at the foot of the first cataract, which, um, is that supposed to be a known geological reference? Do kids learn the waterfalls of Earth in school, or, or is that just a reference that he was told? Yeah. That one, I don't know. Dorcas asks whether Severian would let her come back if she wanted to, back to Nessus. And this is foreshadowing because she does do just that. She goes even further south than the Botanic Gardens. Severian says that it would be a dangerous trip by herself. Quote, I might try to persuade you not to, but I wouldn't bind or imprison you. Now, she wants to talk about that note that was left for her in the Inn of Lost Loves. Severian never did find Owen, the guy who wrote it, his father. Dork is, is ready to look at the note, but Severian reminds her that the note is not the real note. Asia threw that away. It's just an exact copy, which plays into so many themes of this book, whatever you believe about it. Severian has told Dorcas what the note said. Severian postulates that Asia thought, quote, someone, Hildegrin perhaps, was trying to warn me. So Severian opens his sabretache to get the note, and hey, what is this? It's the claw. It's not round. Severian says it's strange shaped. It feels cold. It's only a little larger and thicker than an orichok coin. He says, quote, it flashed Celestine beams back at the frigid rays of the moon. I felt it held a beacon that could be seen all over the city. A Celestine in this context means heavenly, or more specifically, resembling the heavens, the, the sky. Yeah. And the way Wolf puts it in Castle of Days, he says it's a delicate blue 
the color of heaven. Mm. That's the actual phrase that he uses for it. So yeah, it's, it's talked about the color of the skies and the color of the heavens, but the actual way that Wolf phrases it is the color of heaven. Hmm. Severian doesn't say it's faceted, but that is an implication. But the beams might be flashing from the claw or even perhaps Severian's connection to the claw causes him to see it as appearing brighter and flashier than it looks to everyone else. So Severian stuffs it back into the pocket inside his saber tash. Dorcas grabs his arm tightly. He says, she might have been a bracelet of ivory and gold, grown woman-sized. <laughs> That's really gaudy. <laughs> she whispers, what was that? And Severian says, I, I don't know. It isn't mine. It's a gem, a precious stone. Remember that Severian has never seen the claw. And Dorcas says something interesting here. It couldn't be. Didn't you feel the warmth? Remember, it felt cold to Severian. She says, a gem is that thing on the pommel of your sword. What the heck was that? Severian agrees that the dark opal on his sword is, quote, no more like the object I had drawn from my saber tash than a lady's glass is like the sun. I also just thinking symbolically here, it's important. Dorcas does draw attention to, okay, we've got one big symbol that just came out and she's reminding him, look at your sword. Yeah. <laughs> like she just full on says, that's the, the line. Look at your sword. That's a gem. Right. So she's really meaning the gem, but Wolf does it in a way that's like, you know. Look at all the symbols we got here. We look got, at the sword. We've yeah, got so a we've pile got of two, symbols. <laughs> yep. Two things that are, are opposed to, right? right. They're the, the, the bright light of heaven and then the sword that just killed a man. The black opal. Suddenly, Severian gets it. The claw of the conciliator. Aji put it there. She must have when we broke the altar so that it would not be found on her person if we were searched. She and Ajilis would have got it again when Ajilis claimed Victor's right. And when I didn't die, she tried to steal it in his cell. Hmm. You know, Craig, maybe Ajia was trying to save Ajilis in that cell. Maybe she hoped to get it so she could bribe a guard. Hmm. Now, something very appropriate happens, but for a first-time reader, they won't know it. Dorcas looks up into the sky toward Nessus. She says, Severian, it can't be. Severian says, hanging over the city like a flying mountain in a dream was an enormous building, a building with towers and buttresses and an arched roof. Crimson light poured from its windows. I tried to speak, to deny the miracle even as I saw it, but before I could frame a syllable, the building had vanished like a bubble in a fountain, leaving only a cascade of sparks. Well, this, of course, is the Pellerines Cathedral. It's a tent, right? All right, it's a tent. But it's so cool, a strange image when you first read it, too. That you're just like, what in God's name? And of course, what it seems like is something that, you know, oh, he pulled out the claw. He pulled out this gem and it shone a light. And now we're seeing some vision in the sky that came out. So it's certainly when you first read it, it seems like it's got to be connected to whatever this religious holy relic is that came out. And it is. It is because mm -hmm. because the claw has been lost and the purpose of the cathedral was to house the claw. The Pellerines have set it on fire either by chance or design of whoever made the tent, when it is set on fire, it rises as it burns. And at last, it burns out and disappears. So yeah, the moment is unconnected. And yet, it is actually 
very much connected. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting cause and effect. Right. And it's precisely the thing about cause and effect and sort of explanations that they're going to actually talk about in the next chapter of that. Like, is that a, is that a symbolic reason for that? Is there a symbolic explanation for what happened? Or is there a material explanation for what happened? And they're going to talk about how it's both, how symbols and, and there's no contradiction between there being explanations of both kinds. Of course, when you read this the first time, that's it. And we, we don't even know, we have no clue, even when they're arguing about that in the next chapter, what the material explanation could possibly be. Yeah, it's a crazy cliffhanger, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's such a wonderful image. It's one of the things that still sticks in my mind from when I first read it. I'm just like, what? What did I, did I read that? What just happened? Wait, wait a minute. I got to read that. I, once again, I've read an entire paragraph and just realized that I have to go back because I have no idea what I just read. Yeah. Well, think about all the things that are happening in that short space when you first read it, right? You're first of all, he pulls out the claw. You're you're thinking you're going to have this discussion about the note, and I've seen you before. And instead, he pulls out the claw. So there's a big switch that we think we're going to talk about that weird mystery of the note, but now we're talking about this gem. And then the gem comes out, and it's a gem. It's not a claw, right? He's like we've talked about that. It's come up before, but but now we actually see what it is. And so there's that switch. And then there's the explanation that, oh, that's what Agio was doing the whole time. Right. And then on top of that, you get the tent. So it's like so much happens when you first read that, that it just feels like, I think that's one of those cool moments when you do start to maybe get the feeling that, oh, Wolf is totally in control here. Because you've just been kind of following along with, with the story of, okay, then he did the execution, then he had a little conversation afterwards and blah, blah, blah. But then all of there in the space of like, what, half a page, you get like a resolution to one story, a new mystery that come, that came up, an explanation of things that happened again, and some totally out of left field vision. And it's so cool. And then especially once you know, later what was going on as well it feels like yeah that's that's one of those moments where you do really start to get the feeling that wolf is so much in control of things and that's what gives people so much confidence that he really is the puppet master behind all of this because he's so good at, at doing those moments where you know we've talked about how there are sometimes whole chapters where there's a mood setting or there's a little world building but it doesn't seem like a whole lot happens and then here in half a page he throws so much at you right there that it's it's really kind of a cool a cool lesson in in writing of, of how to hold off and and delay on certain things like that and then to just release a whole bunch at once. exactly it's, this is a payoff from all the way back to chapter 18 mm -hmm. yeah so when as far as just the image the image of a building in the sky what did you take that to be like if we don't know that it's the actual tent what do you what do you think that is? It sounds Arthurian, right? It sounds like something out of a Grail quest mm -hmm. that you might see—a castle, yeah, burning in the lighting in the sky. Yeah, a castle in the sky. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking of was in the Fairy Queen, the Knight of uh, Holiness, Red Cross. Uh, he sees a vision of um, the sort of a perfect of uh, basically the kingdom of heaven. He sees a vision of it in the sky, and that's what always stuck with me here. Um, Again, I don't, that's the one part of the Fairy Queen that most people read. So maybe he was thinking about that, but probably not. I got to talk to Nigel about that. <laughs> more, more Spencer and, and Wolf. But that's what I always think of this vision of some kind of holy place in the sky, which maybe is a little different from Arthur, where instead it's Camelot, which is not necessarily holy, but it's, uh, well, I guess if it is the Holy Grail that he's seeing the, 
Have you seen the Grail image in this guy? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's literally so much like some Grail quest. Lots of symbols there again. Yeah, that thing about. I just like that even in there in the end, we get that opposition of the light from the claw and the sword as two symbols that are are kind of connected, but they're opposite in different ways. Like you pointed out, I hadn't even remembered the thing about the dark opal. Like there again, the gems are, are opposite. That's perfect. And that's so cool about the two different sides of a personality that are coming out. So I'm, I'm still very much convinced that this time thinking of the shadow as a union kind of thing, it works so well. And I haven't actually put it all together quite yet, but yeah, I don't know. I got to go ask Mark if Wolf ever talked about Young at all, but just to see if that's something that would actually... I know a couple people online have talked about Young and, and a couple people have said they're really looking forward to us maybe talking more about some Young stuff, but but this is the first place where I feel like it really comes to the fore. Well, hold off. That'll be... You, you work on First Severian and I'll try and keep coming up with some archetypes. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, we certainly hope that you have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints. Bring it on, youngians. <laughs> and I hope you're going to bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, email. I don't care. YouTube. We get comments on YouTube. <laughs> you can find out how to do that all on the show notes. Leave an Apple podcast review and tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Take care, everybody. The God creates and wait. I never mentioned the sword that I use to remove those heads of the mentally dead fools. I want to build with the brothers who claim to be a said person, a righteous ability. Bits and pieces of math, you quote me nothing. To my knowledge, the father never taught fronting. Just some mystery guards trying to climb aboard. I can't afford the front. I'm king, son of the sword. It's the king of the kingdom, descending of King Tut. The sword is golden, unfolding a flat cut. Never sweating small competition at all, y'all. Let him get souped up. I set up a downfall. I'm the king with the sword, decapitating heads. Rappers are dumb before their rhymes are even said. Clean house like a maid as I get paid. Games are played, bodies are slayed and laid. Six feet under, pushing up daisies. Yo, I tried to tell your money grip, you're crazy. To say battle to me, that's a trigger word. S-U-N is a small yet a bigger word. There's been a lot of psychoanalysis on Facebook lately, (laughs) so we can, I don't know if we want any more there. Okay, I'm going to take that out. The thing is, though, if Hathor is already working for Asia in Chapter 30, did you hear that, by the way? Yeah. I hear something squealing in the background. Yeah, Yeah, okay. I'll I'll do it. Yeah.